Welcome to Design for Joy, the radio ministry of Quail Lakes Baptist Church in Stockton, California, celebrating the fact that God's people are designed for the joyful Christian life. We are glad that you could join us for today's broadcast with our pastor and teacher, Dr. Mark Mafucci. And now, let's go to the teaching for today. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Hebrews chapter 6. That's our passage today. Hebrews chapter 6. We are moving through the book of Hebrews, and as we come to the sixth chapter today, here's our key concept for this morning, the main idea. There is danger in dabbling. Danger in dabbling. Hebrews chapter 6. While you're finding that passage, I recognize that we come to a difficult section of Scripture this morning. Hebrews is a complex book. It is often complicated. It is sometimes controversial. The author to the Hebrews does not gloss over hard topics. He doesn't rely on feel-good cliches that go down easy but amount to nothing more than spiritual junk food. This is not junk food. And as such, some of what the book of Hebrews says doesn't go down easy. We have to work to understand. But once we understand, it nourishes us deeply toward discipleship. And that's what we find today in Hebrews chapter 6. We'll first look at the first three verses. <clears throat> he writes, Therefore let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about baptisms and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. What we hear there is a call to pursue a greater depth of understanding and a greater commitment to Jesus Christ. We hear a call to move past elementary things that are foundational and to build a structure of the Christian life in maturity. And the way that he phrases what those elementary things are leaves question as to just what he's talking about. Scholars are somewhat divided. Is he referring to the elementary teachings of the Christian faith that we must lay those aside and press on? Or is he referring to the Old Testament rituals and laws? And here is where the New International Version, if you're reading the version that I just read you, the NIV, here is where we are led astray by our translators. Because in verse 2, the word that the NIV translate baptisms is most often in the New Testament not translated baptisms. It's translated washings. So if you're reading the New American Standard Bible or the English Standard Version, you have a better translation in that verse. And once 
that that, you, that word is translated as washings, it begins to be clear to us that what the author to the Hebrews is talking about as foundational, the things that should be left behind and built upon for the future but we don't want to stay, stay uh, trapped in, these things are the Old Testament rituals and the Old Testament laws. Remember, his audience are formerly Jewish believers who have come to understand Jesus as the one true Messiah, but now they're coming under persecution. And because of that persecution, they're wondering and they're wavering in their faith. The author is saying, don't cling to the elementary foundational things that talk about deeds that lead to death and a general faith in God, that talk about uh, ceremonial washings and the laying of hands on the sacrifice. Don't cling to the incomplete teachings of resurrection and judgments and, and the life to come that are found in the Old Testament. These, these foundational truths are elementary. They're the elementary teachings of Christ because all of the Scripture points to Jesus Christ. But the point is they're basic. They are foundational. More must come. Press on to maturity. The question then comes, well, what does maturity look like? If we're meant to press on past the, the elementary things to, to that which is mature, what does maturity look like? What does it look like in action? How are we to live as mature believers in Jesus Christ? And here is where the style of the writings of this, of this letter uh, is difficult for the modern reader. Because if I was writing this book, I would say something like, press on to maturity, and here is what maturity looks like. Here's the list. But there is no list given here in Hebrews chapter 6. In fact, you will look in vain in Hebrews chapter 7 to find anything that talks about how we are to, to uh, uh, work out this salvation in maturity. He starts talking there about the great comparison of Jesus Christ to what goes before. In chapter 8, the new covenant is explained, but mature living in Christ is not explained. In chapter 9, Jesus as the high priest and sacrifice is outlined, but maturity in action is not described. It's not to chapter 10, towards the end of the chapter, that he circles back around and begins to describe what we are to do do in this life as mature believers. And it's found in a series of let us statements. In verse 22, he says, let us draw near to God. And there, then verse 23, chapter 10, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Here, finally, he shows us what maturity looks like in action. And what he shows us is surprising. Because it's not what we normally think about when we say this person is a mature believer. Very often, all that we mean by that is that this person knows a lot about the Scriptures, has a lot of knowledge 
about the things of the Lord. But the knowledge is assumed by the Hebrew author. He says maturity looks like someone who has a steadfast confidence in Jesus Christ, no matter the circumstances of life. And maturity looks like someone who is living in community with other people and serving the Lord so as to bring him glory, active in the faith, and mobilized for him. So he's saying, yes, you must come to the place where you personally place your faith in Jesus' saving work. Yes, you must move past the anticipation of the Old Testament into the realization of the new. And then you must put to work what you know about Christ in order to grow up in him. Maturity is not all in the mind. Maturity is not about filling up notebooks of lessons and outlines and buying books by favorite authors who retell the same old stories that we hear over and over again if you don't put it to use for the glory of God and the kingdom of God. Because the immature are those who squander resources. And if you're not living for the glory of God, you're squandering the resources that God is pouring into you. Now, we know that to be the case. Immature squanders resources. Parents, how many times do you speak to your kids and you say, turn off the lights, put the milk back in the fridge, close the refrigerator door, turn down the thermostat, turn up the thermostat, whatever it is? Because you understand that resources are being squandered here. And from a mature point of view, that's not the way we're to live. I know that to be the case because I have now officially turned into my father. <laughs> I'm the one who walks around turning off all the light switches behind everybody. Because squandering resources is immature. The same in the Christian life. Maturity is using those wonderful resources of truth and foundational teachings in service for our king. It is doing things about what you believe. And that's what guides us here at Quail as we seek to define a passionate, lifelong follower of Jesus. Our mission statement in this church is to win and build passionate, lifelong followers of Jesus Christ. Everything we do in our programs connects to that statement some way, somehow. But it's not enough just to know the sentence. We need to understand what the words mean. And so what is a passionate, lifelong follower of Jesus Christ? Let me give you my definition. It is a person who is a follower of Christ who is equipped to serve Jesus by understanding the way that they are designed and by being mobilized into ministry for God's glory in some way, by getting busy for God. That is the mature believer who perseveres. Now, now, the first portion of, the, of chapter 6 of Hebrews is that call to maturity. But almost immediately after he asks us to kind of uh, move past the foundational things into maturity, back in chapter 6, verse 4, he veers off into another line of, of uh, thinking right away. In fact, what he does is this. In the mind of the author, after he calls us to maturity, you can almost sense him thinking, but you know what? There is one kind of child that will never grow to maturity. That's the child that's not born. 
Follow that thinking and read with me verse 4 and following. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of, coming, of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Now, this is a shocking section of Scripture. It is shocking, no matter how you interpret it. There are two lines of interpretation that are, are prevalent here. One line of interpretation says that he's talking about a true believer in Jesus Christ who has come to faith in Christ, but at some point turns his back on Jesus and walks away, and that person can't be saved again. Another line of interpretation says that this person is an individual who has faked salvation and then departs from the faith. They never really were saved in the first place. That never really had that inner transformation. They just kind of looked the part. And then they walked away from their pretense of faith. And that person won't be saved again. We call that person a dabbler. Now, both of those alternatives are shocking because both of those interpretations bring condemnation. But which is it? What is he talking about? Is he describing a true believer who has been transformed by Christ but then loses their salvation? Or is he describing some, someone who's just kind of churched but not really saved. I don't believe that he's describing a true believer. I believe he's describing what I call the dabbler, someone who is clinging to a false security, pretending to have faith, maybe even convincing themselves, but not really transformed by Christ. My dictionary at home defines the word to dabble as to dip lightly in. And that's what we see here. Not a true involvement, but a surface approach to the things of God. A placing of a veneer of spirituality over ourselves, wanting to appear respectable. This condition may look like salvation, he says. It may seem like the real thing, even for a long period of time. It may include spiritual experiences and contain Christian terminology. This one might fit into Christian circles and fellowships and that kind of thing, but it's not the real thing. There is a dabbling that's followed by a falling away, and that falling away becomes a barrier that will not be overcome. But the true saints persevere. Why can't that barrier be overcome? Well, he gives an explanation in verse 6. He says, the barrier can't be overcome because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again. What does that mean? Here's what it means. When they dabble and depart, in the departure they're saying, I am on the side of those who put Christ on the cross. They're saying, I agree with those who killed Jesus. 
I think that Jesus is not who he said he is. I believe that the things of earth are worth more than the things of Christ, and I am on the side of those who hung him there. God is saying that when you say that, repentance won't come because the person has been inoculated, in a sense, in a false version of faith. They will not find the real repentance. They never were the real thing. And I think we can see that that's exactly what this passage teaches by seeing what verses 7 and 8 teach. Verses 7 and 8 are meant to be an illustration that explain what he's teaching. See if this explains it to you. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, that produces a crop useful for those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Usually, when you read through this passage, you come to verse 7 and 8, and most people are getting a little confused by now. How does that even fit into the, the statement? It's meant to be an illustration of what the earlier verses taught. And the reason I know that to be the case is, yet again, the New International Translation blows it here. The very first word of chapter 7 in Greek is the word for. For land that, you know, okay. For, in other words, I'm, I'm giving this picture so that you can understand what I've just taught. And the picture says there are two fields. Two kinds of fields. One kind of field produces useful crop. The other kinds of field only produces thistles and thorns. Both fields receive the rain. The rain represents the blessing, the message, the truth. Now, we don't come to know what kind of field this is until we see the crop that it produces. In the germination stage, we're not sure exactly what's going on in that field. But eventually we find out that one of those fields had good soil that produced a good crop. The other of those fields was a bad field, bad soil, bad crop. That's the illustration meant to explain the lesson that just preceded. So there are those who are the real deal, the true believers, and there are those who are the bad soil. They never were the good field, never able to truly produce that which God wants to be produced. But for a while, it's hard to tell the difference. He's showing us that the assembled body of, of a church or a, a, a fellowship is always a mixed multitude. And we must look within to ask ourselves the question, Am I truly a follower of Jesus, converted and glorifying him? But read on. Here's what he says about us. He says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. He wants us to have confidence in Jesus Christ, and we can, 
But we must not be glibly confident. We must be willing to look at ourselves and ask the question, am I resting my faith on what is foundational and true about Jesus? Because if the foundation is off, everything will be warped. And then am I serving in ways that shows that I have been touched by the love of Christ and I want to live for his glory? The Hebrew author appeals here to a sense of duty and to a sense of fear to call us to follow hard after Christ. But I want you to hear that there is another motivation, and that is joy. This is the joyful Christian life as we understand who we are in Christ and we follow after him. What makes a passionate, lifelong follower of Jesus passionate, lifelong? What makes that is we feel the whisper of the joy of God in our hearts. We feel him whispering, well done, good and faithful servant. You don't have to wait to heaven to hear that. You can hear it now as you serve your Savior and feel his pleasure. And God will always use your faithful service. You might not see it, but you'll be growing the kingdom. I want to tell you a story about a man maybe you never heard of. His name is John Eglin. John Eglin was a deacon in a church in Colchester, England, January 1850. He woke up on a Sunday morning and he decided he wasn't going to go to church. And the reason was because there was a snowstorm outside and, and he, the roads were impassable and he had to walk there anyway. But because he was a deacon and he had a sense of duty to go to church that day, John Eglin went. There was only four or five people there in the entire church. The pastor didn't come. And so the people talked to each other. They said, well, we might as well go home. And John Eglin said, no, let's stay. Let's, let's at least have a service. So he got up and he preached his one and only sermon, unprepared. By all accounts, it was a meandering tale. But at one point, he looked into the eyes of a 13-year-old boy who was sitting in the pews that day. And years later, that 13-year-old boy remembered the scene in his journal. Let me read it to you. He says, the minister did not come that morning. At last, a very thin-looking man went up into the pulpit to preach. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. Fixing his eyes on me as if he knew my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. I did, but I was not accustomed to having it remarked upon from the pulpit. <laughs> However, it was a good blow. It struck right home. He continued, you always will be miserable if you don't obey my text, but if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Young man, look to Jesus. Look. And he says, I did look, and the cloud on my heart was lifted, and darkness rolled away. That boy was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He went on to have an impact that was unimaginable. He, he preached to 10,000 people every Sunday without a microphone. Thousands came to Christ because of his ministry. Orphanages, schools, seminaries, churches were all started. 
all because of a faithful deacon who knew it to be his duty to honor his Savior. God ordained service based on the foundation of truth. This is what maturity looks like. And as we go, we grow, but so does the kingdom of God. There's danger in dabbling. But as we are the real deal, we make a difference for our Savior. If you're here today and they're saying, you know, there is a next step I need to take in my walk with Christ. Maybe it is stopping dabbling and getting serious about your faith. Now is the time. Today is the day. Because playing games is dangerous. We are called to kingdom work. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we take apart your scripture and seek to understand just what you're saying, it never fails to strike us in our hearts. Because Holy Spirit, you know exactly what we need. In the week ahead, Lord, we will have opportunities to present the truth. We will have chances to speak the words of witness and invitation to our friends and neighbors and to model love so that they might see in action what maturity in Christ looks like. Lord, we pray we take those chances. Give us courage. Give us strength. Give us eyes to see the needs around us and a heart to feel the hurt. And as we do, Lord, we pray that we would look like you to those who look on. Dismiss us with your blessing and use us for the glory that goes right to you. In your name we pray. Amen.